0: Um, welcome to Self and Non-Self Practices for Developing Virtue, Meditation, and Wisdom. Um, my name is Sarah, and I work at the Berry Center for Buddha Studies. I'll be here to support you through, um, through these four weeks. Um, and I just wanted to um, start off by saying... Um, thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to this course and grateful for your presence um, and um, just kind of getting a few nuts and bolts, a few nitty gritty details off the bat. Um, so, um, this course will take place for the next four weeks. Um, same Zoom link, so the Zoom link you're on now, just be using every Tuesday evening um and this meeting is being recorded um so you'll have access to the recording after each meeting that'll be shared in the google doc i'll put it in the chat now but it will be um posted after um after every session along with the session notes for the following um weeks and to received all of this info in the welcome letter. Um, and if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us at contact at Buddhistinquiry.org. Um, and um, if you'd like to turn on captions, um, you can go to the bottom of your screen um, and under live transcripts, um, just click show subtitle, and then you'll be able to follow along and, and, um, The subtitles here. Um, But if you have any trouble, um, anything kind of comes up along the way, feel free to reach out either through the contact box or by using the chat and sending a message to to me, and we can troubleshoot and figure it out. Um, And that's all for the um, boring technical things. We'll move on to um, the actual summons of the course. So it's We're so lucky to have Aya Santino here with us. Um, She is a Theravada Bhikkhuni who's trained and practicing in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, Her faith in the Dhamma developed during many visits to the monasteries of Ajahn Shah and his disciples in Thailand, America, England, New Zealand, Australia, beginning in 1998. She's been training as a nun since 2005 in large and small monasteries in both England and America. In 2012, she received full ordination as a bhikkhuni and founded Karuna Buddhist Bahara, where she currently lives, located in the Santa Cruz Mountains near Boulder Creek, California, which she's calling in from. Um, her dhamma teachings are primarily based on the Pali and we will really get into some of those Pali poly- over the course of these four weeks. Um, so um, with that, thanks again for being here and I'll hand it over, hand it over to you.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for all your support and to the Berry Center for providing this platform for us to get together in this way. I think the first thing I wanna say is that it's very inspiring to me that you would choose to do this on a a Tuesday or any day. (laughs) And um, there are plenty of other things we could be doing, but to really have an interest in delving into what the Buddha taught, and this idea of self and non-self, I think is is something that's really quite special. So thank you for that and for your practice. And that um, that really sets the tone, I think this. Kind of appreciation and inspiration for what we're going to talk about today. Because today we're going to focus on the idea of self in the way that the Buddha talked about it. So for each session, we're going to be looking at, we're going to first start with a Dhamma teaching, and then we'll have a little time for clarifying questions. So if you have questions about what I say, or you have questions about the study guide material. I know some of you may not have had a chance to look at it yet. If you haven't, hopefully you'll be able to after this session and then um, get ahead of the wave and be able to look at the the things that get put out every week for these four weeks so that you can have your questions ready. And once we have that um, little question and answer period, then we'll have, a guided meditation and probably spend about 30 minutes with that take a short bio break come back go into groups for discussion and and then come back again for more q and a and sharing of what we're what we're learning and what we're experiencing we really want this course to be focused on experience focused on practice of course, in order to practice with these ideas, we have to understand them. So we'll uh, entirely look to the Buddha's teaching for this from the early Buddhist texts to see what, his, what was the point he was making with these teachings. And the, the purpose that uh, the Buddha had, of course, was that we awaken. So that may or may not be the goal you have in mind for your practice. And of course, it doesn't have to be because all of us were, I I imagine all of us are interested in uh, relieving suffering, uh, putting, putting as much as possible an end to dukkha in our lives and the practice, the the development of the mind of virtue and meditation and wisdom is for that, for that very purpose. I always like to think that the one of the wonderful things about practicing the Dhamma is that it brings results all along the way. And it does end up in awakening, whether that's our primary goal that's forefront in our mind or not. And awakening just really means freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. It means the end of all craving, all desiring, or wanting to get rid of. And another way to think of it is it's the ultimate mental health. So as we develop ourselves towards that, uh, we experience so much good. And... There is a lot of attention that gets paid to the doctrine of non self because it was something that the Buddha emphasized a lot. And there also can be some confusion around it. So, you know, that the Pali word for that is anatta, and uh, that the other the, the word for self, atta, without the N in the front of it. So, Pali words. Uh, often Pali words are um, formed, the opposite of them is formed by adding an A on the front of the word. And in this case, it's A-N because the actual word we're working with, ata, is, uh, starts with an A, starts with a vowel. So, it's to, so the opposite of ata, which means self, is anata, anata, not self. And we see that with other things, with other words too. Um, but in this case, we're really looking at two different concepts. And when the Buddha talked about atta,
2: he wasn't referring to an a lasting um, unchanging
1: kind of essence or self. That's what he um refers to when he talks about anatta, which we'll talk about more in the next three weeks. But with atta, he's talking about the conventional self. It's like, here you are, I see your faces. And here I am, and we talk to each other, and we move around in the world and do all kinds of things. And and, um, this is what the Buddha was referring to, this self. That takes action and decides things and develops if we so choose to practice. And and one of the interesting things to consider is that whatever we are doing repetitively is a practice. So when I was doing software design, you know, programming and debugging, that was a practice too. And I thought, is this the practice I want in my life? (laughs) Nothing wrong with it, of course, in, in really in the worldly sense. But when we put our attention on what is it we really want to develop, then we ask ourselves, well, what do we want to practice in order to create that change, that development? One of the questions that comes up around this conventional self is whether or not we have free will. And if you had a chance to look at the study guide, you'll see that the first uh, excerpt from the suttas from the Anguttara Nikaya is called one's own volition. Volition or free will, the ability to choose what we wanna do, what we say, um, even the, the, what, the, what, uh, the way in which we think you know the kinds of things we add energy to not those random thoughts that pop into the mind but the things we actually ponder the things we actually organize in our minds those are volitional thoughts and that the buddha was very clear that that he uh, understood that we have volition we have agency we have free will we can choose and this sutta at the beginning of the, um, of the study guide talks about someone who comes to the Buddha and says that he believes that one does not act under their own volition. And it's interesting because people have been telling, telling us that they hear this from teachers um, from time to time nowadays. They, um, they develop a, a, an idea that says, uh, we're basically doing everything that we do based on conditioning and that, that we don't really operate with free will. We don't really have choice. We just think we have choice. The choices we're making are we're making out of deep conditioning, and there's no other option. The Buddha certain, certainly did not think this way. He, he repeatedly made it clear that we have choice and that our choices matter that they produce results, that good results come from skillful, loving, honest actions, uh, harmless actions, and
2: painful results come from cruelty, uh, from unskillful actions.
1: And so it's, it's useful to examine this and where, what do we really think ourselves? Where are we in this uh, understanding? And the Buddha uses a very, very obvious way to talk to this person. And he says, So, you know, I can't understand how someone can think that if they've decided to come see me on their own, they're going to decide when to leave on their own. And then he says, Do you see that living beings take initiative and do things? And he said, Yes, people. Take initiative, and do you see that people apply energy to what they're doing? He said yes, I see that. You know, um, do you see, um, you know, that that people put in persistence in their work and exertion, and they have strength and endurance, and so all of these things the Buddha said indicates that that we are acting out of our own volition. And it's interesting if we examine what the things are that we do sort of on automatic pilot and how it is that we can change, change our deeply ingrained habits. And it really comes first and foremost from making our patterns, our habits, our tendencies conscious. It's conscious awareness. And that's where mindfulness comes in. That we're aware of why we do things. I know um, so I, you may not know this about me, but I, I uh, am a mother. I had two, two kids. I have two kids. They're now middle-aged adults. And uh, I became a nun when they were young adults, I guess. And at some point, various points, I would ask myself, What was really behind the decisions I was making when I was raising them. And sometimes when I felt like I was, you know, deciding how to do something,
2: I'd look back and I would think, no, really, that I learned from my parents. I'm really doing it just the way my parents did it. Maybe
1: that wasn't such a free will choice, as free will of a choice as I thought. But then I can also look at things that I'm doing that are totally Opposite of the way my parents did it or the way I saw other people do it. And so we can look for ourselves to see where we have choice, even for something as simple as am I going to eat that cookie or not? Am I going to, you know, follow my sort of old track of pattern or not for whatever it might be? the buddha thought he was so clear about the fact that we have choice that we can decide to do things even the things that we think are pretty automatic like a, like anger arising sometimes we think it just comes and flares and i can't stop it and the things that come out of my mouth are just because of that conditioning that strong emotion but actually there's a point where we decide to go with it. And if we can recognize that and then look for that point, where is there a letting go into it? And where is there a point where I can say, no, I'm gonna do it differently this time. I'm gonna sit with this feeling and be present with it and observe it until it fades. And I'm not going to say a word. We can actually choose to do that, and we may not catch ourselves uh, the first time or the first ten times or whatever it is. But as soon as we catch ourselves, we can go back. We can also go through the sequence of events in our mind and decide where would I like to change course as I reflect on this next time. I, this this happens. So all of these. Um, hints that we can pick up on about our own patterns help us to be able to make decisions about how we want to do things differently. The other sections uh, that are in the study guide, one of them a series of verses in the Dhammapada talking about um, the way to live a virtuous life, how to direct the self, Again, the Buddhists were using the word Atta And the importance of what, what, developing this conventional self is huge because it's the foundation for developing in the Dhamma. We can't jump over this part and just go to the, the more subtle, maybe more interesting kind of ideas in the Buddhist teachings We have to do this groundwork if we really want to make progress. The groundwork is in virtue. It's in how we apply our
2: personal strength. It's in how we develop in the Dhamma, in our own ability to know and see directly what is true,
1: the way things actually are. And this is through the Self, or you might say through the perception of self, given that this this living being here doesn't last based on its own substance. I like the way it's put in some traditions, it can't exist from its own side. The body's going to die. All the khandas are going to go. The mental characteristics that we might consider this is me. And like I said, we're going to be diving into that more later. But the the important takeaway today is I have this opportunity to grow, develop, um, solidify these qualities, these, these habits, new habits, approaches to life that can help me develop in character. And that those qualities, those new habits, those characteristics will serve you um, as you, as you go forward to help bring more calm, more peace, more confidence, and to be more
2: trustworthy. So it helps everyone around us. And then those are the only things,
1: really, that go with us after the body dies. That karma. That's another whole area that I know can be really challenging. How do we know what happens when we die? And I'm happy to talk about that. The Buddha was certainly clear that there's something that comes after this life. He was also really clear that he didn't want us to just take anything on blind faith. So don't believe it because I'm saying it, don't believe it because he was saying it. It's to really examine for ourselves see it for ourselves. The way that happens is first and foremost developing those qualities of your character, of our our approach to, to life, to the teachings, to how we work with other people, and then to be able to open up to what we don't know or see yet ourselves. So that direct knowledge, that direct experience can come. So when we look at the Dhammapada verses, I'm not going to go through everything because I really want to encourage everyone to read and ponder what's in the study guide. Um, So you won't get a regurgitation, hopefully, (laughs) on the day we come together. But the first one, the first verse, talks about holding ourselves dear Or in a different translation uh, by Bhante Sujato, he says, if you love yourself, then you will will watch out for yourself. You'll take care of yourself. And this is extremely important. The Buddha encouraged this love for ourselves. He encouraged us to reflect upon our own goodness. Because you know what we put our attention on, that's what grows. That's what develops. And then if we put our attention on the good that we do, and I don't mean it's never, if we're truly looking at it from a place of appreciation for our goodness, it's not egotistical. It's good to notice that. Whenever the ego is involved, you might notice that there is suffering.
2: There is anxiety. There is a tension in it, a, a tenseness. and
1: this if if we can notice that and the distinction between that kind of feeling and just the feeling of appreciation and kindness towards ourselves that really appreciates the things that we do that are helpful kind generous virtuous you know i didn't intentionally kill any living beings today i didn't intentionally lie I didn't intentionally use sexual energy in a way that was harmful or disruptive or in any way uncomfortable, et cetera. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of going through some of the, the basic precepts here. And one of the practices that's helpful in this development of the self, quote unquote self is to take the five precepts and to uh, maybe examine them even daily. Um, I've met people who have decided I'm going to read the five precepts every day and you know, it changes their life. And that's what we're that's what we're looking at here changing our life. And you you know you might think well maybe my life's pretty good. I don't think I have to <laughs> change it all that much but if there's any suffering at all in our life any you know, dissatisfaction, things don't feel quite right, you know, any of that dukkha, then we want to change. Because when we're fully enlightened, we're not going to be exactly the way we are right now. We're going to be free of a lot of things. That's change. So it's not about, oh, I have to change because I'm such a bad person. That's our, I mean, in the West, that's really very strong tendency to really beat up on ourselves, to look at the negative. And it's not like we don't want to, we, we want to know what's there, but then turn our attention to the good because that's what's going to grow, what we put our attention on. So we have to, we look at the, the things that we do that aren't as, as we would like them to be and we learn from it and we we'll go on. And we develop those things that we want in our life. So the five precepts can be really helpful there. And actually, if for anyone who's interested in taking the precepts together, I'm going to stay on after this is over, and you're welcome to stay. And I'll put up a a screenshot of the precepts, and, and we can take the three refuges and the precepts. That's something that you'd like to do, and I can also answer questions about them if you have questions. And you can also take like four and a half precepts. Sometimes people are like not ready to give up that glass of wine, or and then even or you can take the precepts for twenty four hours and just see how it feels, or a week, and then just like oh no, I really want to do this thing that's not in line with the precepts, and then notice how that feels. It's really okay. These are for practice. It's not a commandment. It's not a do this or else. It's a training. But what we learn as we develop virtue in this way is that the the mind, it's the mind but it's the energy becomes more purified. This is something, this The states of mind, the energy of the mind, the energy of your system, how people respond, people respond to that. If it's got a sense of purity, it feels different. It's a different level of vibration that makes you not want to go back to those things that are more coarse. And and the beauty is it, it's not like you or at least if we, if we do think, well, I'm better because I keep precepts, or I'm better because, then again, look at the suffering in that. That's, that's, um, that's something else to have compassion for ourselves over. So this this part of loving ourselves, being compassionate towards ourselves, we can have that for other people, and we can have it for ourselves in the same way. This is a very important platform to base our practice on and base our life on. And when we, the more kind we are to ourselves, the more we want to support this, this living being that is named Santusika or whoever, right? This living being that is operating here at this point in time in the world, this process that's running the more I'm kind to this, the more peace I'll experience, the more happiness there will be, and, and the more effective we are in helping others and helping our world along. Yeah, I love, I love the idea that we can become
2: completely trustworthy in the world, that no one has to fear us at all for
1: any reason. It's beautiful. And it's very much a part of what the Buddha talked about, about self. And it's um, in this, in the, the last um, or second to the last, I guess, passage, the Mangala Sutta, the highest blessings. This is a, a very beautiful description
2: of a really wonderful life. Where all the qualities
1: of you know where we live and what we do for work and how we interact with our with our loved ones and friends and it's it just covers so much ground and it's a wonderful reference. So you know where do I want to put more um, more time into developing that bit or something?
2: Something that I've already developed that I want to encourage to blossom further. So on that note
1: of kindness and loving ourselves, I'd like to invite you into meditation. Oh, I promised a little question time, didn't I? If you have questions at this point, clarifying questions about what I just
2: said or um, any of the things in in the study guide. So Sarah, should I just answer hands or did you wanna do anything?
0: Um, Yeah, it's up to you if you want to answer hands or ask folks,
2: but type up the questions.
1: Okay, I'll go in order, and if you see anything that I don't, let me know. Phil, you want to unmute yourself?
3: Mm -hmm. Thanks very much. Great start to the program. So I, I can understand how we shouldn't identify with the conventional condition self. But then the important aspect is the impermanence of everything. Can you explain to me how can karma impact us from life to life if everything is impermanent? What is it that undergoes cyclic rebirth if everything is impermanent? And if we're not, question. and if we're not the conventional self, then who or what are we?
1: So this is beautiful, the heart of the matter for us.
2: Um, Okay, so yes, all conditioned things are impermanent.
1: And that would be any form of the five aggregates. Body, feeling, um, mental formations perceptions, consciousness, sense consciousness at least. The thing that, that however, it all doesn't um, end at the same time, you might say. So these sankara that you see in the chain of dependent origination, those sankara, I think of them like patterns, habits, I, I, was, I someone told me, so I don't quite know if it's true, but they said they heard the Dalai Lama answer this question: What gets reborn? And he said, "Your bad habits." <laughs> but of course, it would be our good ones too. So, what gets so there are those things that keep going beyond the death of the body. So the body ends; it unravels. All the elements go back to
2: um,
1: where they came from. I guess you could say. But something keeps going, and the push that causes us to keep going is craving. And what happens, the Buddha says, is then then that craving and that karmic stream, those patterns, that unfinished business, that's the way I like to answer what gets reborn, it's the unfinished business, the stuff that hasn't come to rest, that we still want to accomplish, that somehow we, we want to have we want to have that relationship again that ended too soon. Whatever it is that pushes us on to want to continue to be, act in the world, smell, taste, touch, that push and those patterns reestablish in another living being, you might say, reform. And it, it pulls together. The, a body, and so name and form, sense uh, abilities, and so on. Now, this might seem all really mystical and mysterious, and it is, in a way, until people start to do what the Buddha did and had uh, an understanding of recollection of past lives. That's one way that people start to understand, oh, if, you, if you've seen how your lives were before, I'm say, saying this knowing that most of us don't, right? But there are quite a lot of people who do, actually. So if you see what happened before, oh, in this past life, there was this attraction to something or someone, and it never finished. I still like that. Everything down to like what color you find favorite, everything down to, you know, like this is someone I don't trust because of something that happened before. That all continues on. Does it ever come to an end? Yes, it comes to an end when we realize Nibbana, when there's no more wanting or, or wanting to get rid of. So it's process we're in part of a process we're in a stream of flow of process and that process continues it doesn't need the body to continue with it it continues and reestablishes, comes together again in another form so how do we relate to this self we relate to it as yes i'm here um Like one person who comes to some of the things that I teach said that her, her life has such beautiful conditions. There's been so much good in her life. She knows that those beings who were in her karmic stream in the past did a lot of good. And she said, now I'm determined not to drop the ball. I'm going to do good in this life and keep this, this flow going in a good way. So that's the way I think of it. It's like a flow of energy. And that energy is pushed by our desires. So I hope that helps a little bit. Um, And you could say, well, how am I going to understand this if I don't see my past lives? But there is another way, an important alternative. So, like, you know, you see the main, the primary disciples of the Buddha, the chief. Disciples. On the bhikkhu side, it was Sariputta and Mahamogalana, and on the bhikkhuni side, it was Kema and Upalawana. And Kema and Sariputta were known for their great wisdom, and Upalawana and uh, Mahamogalana were known for their psychic powers. So, with psychic powers, you see these past lives. And many of the bhikkhunis who wrote in the Tarikatha talk about their ability to see their past lives, it comes with deep meditation sometimes. But for Sariputta, I don't know for sure about Kema, but he he didn't have psychic powers, but he had incredible wisdom. So how can you know things without that psychic ability? It's through understanding the Dhamma. At one point he says, I know the drift of the Dhamma. It's the wisdom. It's the direct seeing. When the Buddha talks about the Dhamma being available here and now to see, to know and see directly, experience directly. It comes from deeper reaches of the mind, or I don't know, that's one way to put it. (laughs) Wherever it comes from, it's something we didn't know before. It's like when the Buddha became enlightened, he said a knowledge and vision came that was not known before. It still requires virtue, meditation and wisdom in order for those things to occur. But once then we know it for sure, there's no more doubt.
3: Thank you. And you have a lot of questions. Thanks very much.
1: You're welcome. Okay, Jesse.
3: Thank you. Um, as a father of um, two elementary school kids, you know, and any reference to family and, and Polly Cannon, you know, jumps out at me in big bold letters because um, sometimes there can be, it can be framed in different ways. And so in this uh, uh, passage, it refers to cherishing family, but I, I struggle sometimes with, I think some suttas that frame family as a fetter and, uh, you know, as a source of attachment. Um, So uh, I'm delighted to hear that you you know you you are 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 a parent um, and uh, hopefully you know some wealth of understanding in that regard that maybe other um, monastics uh, may not. And so I'd I'd love to hear your perspective. How does one cherish family without developing or you know being ensnared uh, in the kind of clinging and attachment that that leads to suffering?
1: That's exactly the crux of the practice. I mean. Family has been a big practice for me as as a nun. And um, it's exactly what you say. It's developing love for them that doesn't have attachment. And that developing that kind of love, metta, is a really, it's an unconditional, boundless love that can be extended to all beings and to ourselves. So it's the same kind of love we would have for ourselves that doesn't have this stickiness or this ego behind it. And, and I, you know, it's of course we're going to develop attachment to our kids, but then we get to watch that because when there's suffering, there's attachment in the love. And when the love is more, Um, if it's so completely unconditional or even a little bit unconditional, (laughs) I don't know if that's possible, but you can see that at the points where I can really let them go and let them be who they are and make their choices, especially as they get older, because you know, gradually they're going to make their own choices by the time they're in the mid teens or late teens, they're beyond your, um, they may be beyond your um, control for sure. In fact, I, I realized I, at two years old, my son was out of my control. <laughs> like they have a mind of their own and a, and a stream of their own, um, the past and where they're going. And so we can try to influence them and care for them. But when, they're, when we suffer over what they're doing, and what they're choosing, and what's happening to them, what their karma is, then we know that we're attached. And then we look at that, and then we step back, and we go, okay, this person, this being, just like looking at myself, this being has its own karma. It has, it has where it's come from and where it's going, and, and none of where it's going is predetermined preconditioned, yes, but not predetermined. So we do what we can to try to guide them in a good way and give them the best example we can give. But we just keep an eye on our own suffering. Now I have grandchildren. Whole new layer of practice. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's important to remind ourselves that they could die any time that they could make choices that are harmful for them and for other people around them anytime. There could be accidents anytime and then work at unraveling that attachment. And the more selfless we become with them, the the more we can help them, the more they can rely on us because we don't have any skin in the game for ourselves. (laughs) We're, we're able to really support them.
3: Thank you. And, and I appreciate the use of control, uh, John Amaro used that in the talk that spoke a lot to me that control is one thing we can try to loosen even if attachment runs very, very deep. So thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.
2: Um, so this says, Amy, hi Amy.
4: Hi, hello. Hello. Um, I felt there was something in the reading of the Dharma that I needed to be clarified on. And hearing you speak right now, I see it's the same point. Um, I've been in a different tradition for 45 years. I have meditated every morning for 45 years. And it's this question of what you brought up about free will. And in my experience, um, most of what I do during the day um, is in order to reaffirm this conventional self. Um, that is not free in that sense. It's not it's often not even something I choose or like. It's um, being done because somehow, I'm reaffirming even some of my Mm
5: -hmm. kindness,
4: some of my efforts within, you know, are reaffirming Mm -hmm. the conventional self. And there was one um, answer in one's own volition. That was, since there is an element of energy and sentient beings who have energy are found and I mean, energy can mean a lot of things. I don't think it means, you know, energetic energy could be attention and that beings who have attention um, have some element of wish or will because of a connection to something finer, a connection to something which is not self. you know it's it's not the conventional self it's not my usual consciousness um and mostly you know i see that in the silence in my sittings but also Mm -hmm. the more i see about myself year after year after year um is that much of what i thought was free will really wasn't. I was, it really wasn't. And to see that and accept that has opened up some of what you said about, you just said love without attachment. I don't think Mm -hmm. the conventional self, unless I'm not understanding, and I probably don't have the background um, to understand, but real pure love as a source is not, again, a feature of the conventional self, I think. Mm. Um,
1: so I don't think of it that way, and I get that you're, you know, it's there's a lot of ideas about a, a conventional self and a bigger self. And the Buddha didn't really talk about it that way at all. Yeah. Um, and and this idea of well, this is coming from somewhere else, uh, which certainly it feels it feels that way. Like when the Buddha said. This knowledge and vision arose that it wasn't known before, um, but it's but it's like can't we can't really honestly identify this other source, which for many people would be God or um, you know the 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 big self or something like that. But the Buddha really wanted us to be very clear in looking at what we're identifying. And the way he talks about this is, it's not like the this conventional self has. Um, what am I trying to say? It's not like the. It's not like that. We can't access um, meta or the other sublime states from the conventional self. Mm-hmm. It's just that the conventional self is, is a collection of impermanent conditions. And when those conditions come to an end, then it morphs into something else. But that's not related to wisdom, to Dhamma being available to us or um, this ability to experience and cultivate the divine ab- abidings it's it's all there as part of this process and we have the, the the will that we have the will that it took for you to meditate every day for all these years the will that it took for you to sign up for this course this is exactly coming through this conventional self we use this body we use this mind and we have to if we want to like develop we can't do it in any other way here and now mm-hmm. So it's like, don't think about this conventional self as this, this is a fixed, this is the idea, this is what it has, this is what it's capable of, and this is what it's not capable of. The mind is incredibly powerful. There's so many choices that we have at any moment that we don't even realize we have. When you talk about going through your day, you know, doing things that aren't, through your will. It's only because those are at an unconscious level that are those unconscious things are motivating you. Make them conscious and you start to choose about them. Okay.
4: Okay.
2: Thank
4: you.
2: You're welcome. Sharon? You're muted. Oh, yeah, there you are. Thank you. Um,
4: I, I would like you to say something about the last little reading that you gave us be your own island and i'm Mm -hmm. trying to kind of puzzle with that um versus the three jewels that we take refuge in and how does how does that fit
1: well it fits in that the the three the buddha the dhamma and the sangha um start to become one thing um and that is that is it's all within the dhamma and so that becomes our refuge so it's not a contradiction it's just a it's looking through a different facet okay what i would
2: say
4: okay thank you
2: you're welcome okay jerry uh yeah i have a question good to see you here uh
3: and i I have a question about free will. So mm-hmm. uh, we have all come here together you know, by choice somehow. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I also know, you know, a, a deer will be in a field, hear the sound, and flees. Yes, that it has that intention. A uh, sea star will chase after a cockle.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: A cockle will flee. Mm-hmm. A tree grows towards the light.
2: Are all of these have free will?
1: The Buddha said that the plants, the trees, don't have consciousness. Um, I have seen animals make choices. Um, dogs, you can tell sometimes if they're going to decide to disobey or not. They they seem to pause and make a decision. How much conscious awareness one has to have to be able to do that, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I'm not even sure it matters. I think we have to we have to look at what matters. You know, like are we don't get caught up in things that don't inform your system into doing
2: the things that make your mind more peaceful and your life more beautiful don't worry about it (laughs) okay okay so let's let's go on to meditation please find a comfortable position and when you meditate you want to be comfortable so that you can really relax Really let go and start by tuning into our breathing as a way to get centered and calm. Then I'd like you to put your attention on the soles of your feet. And notice how they feel right now, whether
1: they're on the floor, on the ground, feeling the shoes that they're in.
2: Or or if your legs are folded upright up to the ceiling, pointing facing up to the ceiling that those soles of your feet, the toes, the arch, the ball, the, the heel,
1: and and really bringing a sense of appreciation to them, a pre- appreciation for all that they
2: offer, all that, that they've done, all the many places they've taken you. Kindness towards the bottom of your feet. And then begin to expand your awareness a little bit to take in all of the foot, both feet, the tops, and the ankle. And really bring a feeling, a a sense of kindness, Appreciation. Love. The feet have given you so much opportunity. Carried you so many miles. Just notice how they feel right now. And if there's any discomfort, perhaps some compassion can arise for them. They've been around a while. Diligent in their service. And then let our awareness expand to the whole of the lower legs. The feet
1: are still part of what you're experiencing, what you're noticing. But
2: also your calves and those bones in your lower legs, muscles. Bring some kindness and compassion, appreciation to your lower legs. And then expand your awareness to your knees. These knees that allow you to sit comfortably and stoop and kneel walk having that that sense of kindness towards them, compassion for whatever aches or pains might afflict them from time to time. And then taking in the upper legs all the way to, to the hips, those strong thigh bones that carry you, the muscles and everything else there, giving them attention and kindness. Love and appreciation for both legs all the way and feet feeling how they are right now. May feel where they meet the ground or the chair, whatever they're resting on, if they're comfortable. And expand awareness to include up to your waist, that whole lower abdomen, hips belly and everything inside part of your elimination system purification system for the body your lower lower back tailbone the muscles, how important that is for your health and happiness. Compassion for any discomfort, kindness, and expanding our awareness to everything up to the diaphragm, that layer between the lungs and the stomach, rest of the digestion, organs and glands to be found there, a portion of the spine. Bringing attention and kindness and love, compassion for the whole operation there, the whole process essential for your life. and then expanding awareness to bring in the rest of the torso up to your neck, the lungs, the heart, the ribs, the spine, the muscles, the blood flow, the nerves. Taking in everything from the neck down, body, legs, feet, appreciation, appreciation for all of its work, that heart beating for such a long time, those lungs constantly working to give us life. glands, secreting what's needed to stay balanced. Now we take in the shoulders and the upper arms that give us an opportunity to do so many things. and then the elbows and the lower arms bringing kindness and compassion and appreciation to your arms that hold and hug and help And taking in the wrists and hands, I reflect on all the many things these hands have done. And remembering all the good things, the ways in which these hands and arms have supported you and others. Aware of this whole body below the neck, arms and hands, legs and feet, everything in the torso and abdomen. And then we include the neck and the head. Just noticing how it feels right now. The eyes, the tongue, the ears, scalp. What an amazing collection of important components. What an amazing process this body is. A vehicle for our practice for our ability to love to show that love and care, kindness. Appreciating this vehicle, this support that allows us to interact with the world, to see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think. Feel. And we can love and care for this body. And also make effort for it to be our last one. to be completely clear that it's going to die, it's going to unravel. It is not self. But to care for it, to love the body, to be kind to the body
1: is a start to being kind to this whole
2: conventional self, this body and mind. Appreciating the opportunity it gives us to practice, to develop. we just rest here in the body with attention on kindness loving kindness And that fills this whole body, fills this being, expands beyond it. This kindness that is the foundation for compassion and joy. And remembering that turning our attention towards these beautiful qualities Inviting their increase, their expansion is one of the many powers of the mind that we can call upon, that we can choose to place attention on and to develop. you. Mm-hmm. So now, if you need a break,
1: take it, but come back as soon as you can. And Sarah is going to break us into small groups. But before you go, I just want to remind you when you're in your small groups to be mindful of the time. We're going to take 20 minutes. And so there'll be enough time. There's going to be four of you in each group. There'll be enough time to, uh, for each of you to say something. Please make sure everybody gets their chance and uh, share the time. And also to keep confidentiality of whatever is said there in the group leave it there, Um, and uh, orient your comments to your own experience from your own experience. And uh, sometimes we call it the no enlightenment rule. You can enlighten yourself, but please refrain from trying to enlighten other people. (laughs) And so go ahead. Uh, When you come back, you'll be in a group. Does that work okay, Sarah?
2: Okay, great. Okay. And if you just hang in uh,
1: and wanna stay, that's fine too. I'll see
2: you back here in the main room in about 20 minutes or so. We'll wait another minute or a few seconds as everyone comes back. So there was one slight oversight before I let
1: you go. I didn't. I don't think I have told you what um, question I was uh, hoping you could discuss, uh, but it did show up in the chat. So whether you saw it there or not, it was. What can you do to be kinder to yourself, love yourself more, and encourage yourself more? So if that wasn't what you talked about, that's fine. I hope you can take that away with you and and reflect upon it.
2: And, And I'm interested in questions, comments, anything
1: that you wish to share about your experience in regard to the self. Yes, Jerry.
6: Yeah, thank you for taking my question. Um, I I had recently heard, and I was trying to find references for it, that uh, actually it was another class through uh, the BSBC. Uh, The teacher uh, stated that the Buddha's view on self, uh, on not self, was based on the, car, the common uh, in India at the time view of self as Atman, as sort of a, 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 a universal, uh, not universal, but as, as a soul. And um, I piece together, maybe it's not true that the Buddha, like most leaders are a little revolutionary. He didn't care for the fact that the Brahmins were using their birth status to dominate the rest of society. Uh, and so his self point of view was not, there is no uh, grand self that's superior, you know, we're all, we're all the same. And so this, and there is no soul that you can then use to dominate uh, in the caste system. So that makes makes sense to me. Uh, Do you agree with that point of view? Or I don't know how well I gave it justice because I'm still learning. I
1: think I understand. I mean, clearly we've all uh, encountered religion um doctrine, religion do- religious doctrine and philosophies about um the divine the omnipotent omnipresent um you know um what's the other omna <laughs> you know <laughs>
2: omniscient and
1: omniscient thank you <laughs> yes exactly and I don't believe that the Buddha chose to talk about not self because of the brahmins or their power he re- reported on the experience of the dhamma and so we're going to talk about this in more detail next week but he wasn't he wasn't forming doctrine out of some ideas or responses to what people were doing, he was reporting the way things actually are through direct experience. He knew that through direct experience. And he said, just look, he, and we'll see in the readings next time, where he says to the monks, you know, can you find anything that can be called self? And so what he, he is using this idea of an everlasting, unchanging self, a soul that continues and will last forever, and that the soul and the world is one, and I'm going to be lasting forever once I die. He's, he's using that, and he says, you tell me where you find that to be true. And that's exactly what we need to do, is do that same examination to know whether or not there is such a thing. So we're gonna talk about this more next time and you'll see it in the readings, in the simile of the snake. So when you take a look at the the study guide for next time. So what I'm gonna do is post the the readings for next time in the same document as they are for this time, but we're gonna post them at the top so you don't have to scroll through um, part one to get to part two it'll be all in reverse order, but that's probably just the way it's gonna be easiest to use. And I'm also not gonna post the whole sutta. In that case, the simile of the snake from the middle length discourses is very long and has a lot of components, but I really encourage reading it all. If you go back to the source, there are links, there will be links that you can follow to get to it online. And you might have your own um, Nikaya books around, that you can, you know, take to bed and read the suttas. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, that's that's what I notice. I mean, when you get into the suttas and you really see how the Buddha based his teaching, it was all on what you could actually experience and he never oversteps that. So we have a very good model for what's possible to know directly ourselves. It's, it's really powerful and inspiring. Thank you for
2: your question, Jerry.
6: Thank you for your answer.
2: Patty. I ask, good to see you, good to be here. Um, this question that
1: I have leads exactly directly into direct experience. And um, actually, one of your next suttas may be what may be what I'm asking about. But and I, I hope I don't put you on the spot. But I hope you remember uh, which sutta it is that the Buddha says. And I don't remember to whom. Uh, you know, if
4: if you're if you are if you have a self, can you say to yourself, "I will not be sick," and you will not be sick? Mm-hmm. And then he gives about I don't know. Eight or ten examples of that, and mm-hmm. and if you can't do that, you know, do you
1: can you tell me what that sutta is and talk? Well, a I know more if, about it. Yeah, he does talk about this in the Anatalakana Sutta, which is the second discourse that he gave, according to what we've got preserved in the Pali Canon, when the Buddha was enlightened. Various yeah. things happened, but then he went back to find the five uh, ascetics that had been uh, practicing with him right. previously. And the first teaching he gives is uh, is the Dhamma Sutta, which is setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, talking about the Four Noble Truths. And according to what we know, the second teaching was on not-self. And in there, he talks about exactly that. If if this body were self you would be able to say let it be like this and it'll be like this now that kind of kind of hard to understand at first um then we'll talk about it more next week but you can but that's also represented in our readings for next time so you can um really ponder that see perfect. perfect thank you thank you yeah you're welcome patty
5: um
4: Uh, good evening, Aya and everyone. Uh, I just wanted, in our little group, we talked about um, what really uh, uh, what really um, holds us back from being
1: kind to ourselves or others. Mm-hmm. And the two items, the two thoughts we came up with was uh, often a lack of patience or compassion. Yes. And I was wondering if you just, there are many hands I can see, so I was wondering if you could just give us one example of how uh, each could be used skillfully, because that's the intent eventually, um, to be able to, uh, to, to do well in life, to, to take the next step. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. So patience, I mean, the place where I think we often lack patience is when we do something unskillful again and or the same um, strong emotions arise again we fall into the same pattern again and we feel like I should be finished with this but to bring patience to it means to come to it from a place of mindfulness that this experience is an experience we can observe it becomes an object to us, and we can bring compassion along with. So I guess we can, we can bring both of those qualities you mentioned, which are so important. We can bring compassion to our own um, places where we feel we want to improve, or maybe we've done something that we would like to uh, not do again, and then learn from it and let it go. And, and, and then the patience comes if that if that same pattern shows up again but always coming to it as best we can with mindfulness with compassion with understanding but also a determination to do it differently next time. So thank you for that. If we could have the kindness for ourselves, the patience that we would want to have for the most dear being um, our own child or, Uh, some sweet animal or whatever it is. If we can have that for ourselves, we'll make much more progress.
2: Thank you, Aya. Barbara? Um, I liked our small group
4: and um, I'll share. I just came out of a different retreat and mm. the retreat, one thing that I got from the retreat, and I'm trying to interweave it with what you're presenting today. So mm-hmm. it, I, what I got out of the retreat was I'm not running the show. <laughs> I'm not in control. And, and yet today, I, um, I, I don't know, help me interweave that with what you're sharing today, please. I'm trying yeah, to keep it brief.
1: I, I think I can keep it very brief. There is very little we have control over in this life. We have control over what we say, what we do, and what we think. And to the degree that we can bring up the mindfulness and the proper intention, uh, we can control those things, and that is it. So it's good to recognize what do we have agency over and what we do not. Thank you, Barbara. Okay, I'm sorry. Mimo,
6: a little bit quick, okay? No problem. Thank you, Aya. And it's really two quick questions. One regarding um, uh, tension: how to deal with it during meditation, stress and tension. Mm -hmm. And when we did this meditation today, uh, I found it a little bit hard to uh, to give uh, compassion to individual parts of the body i can give i can think about compassion to another person or, mm-hmm. or to myself but not to a particular part of the body uh, any any suggestions on how to deal with that those two issues
1: okay um, what was the first one again sorry
6: <laughs> about tension and stress tension. during meditation
1: yes oh these two are kind of related aren't they mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah so if we can bring mindfulness, it's really establishing mindfulness as you sit down to meditate it means, of course, that you, you see, you observe, you're present with the tension, with, with the discomfort. And that being present with it already begins, if, if we can see the spark of compassion in that already. It's helpful. The spark of kindness. And so by being present with, instead of caught up in or wishing it would go away or being upset with ourselves that it's there, somehow this is a bad meditation or this is a failure in some way, letting all that go aside to the best of our ability and be present with the experience. And, and just, and then again, it, it, you might It might never be um, the sort of um, the meditation that works for you. We're different. We operate, uh, all of us, uh, different channels are more effective than others. And we have to look at what works for us. So using the body in this way might never be your cup of tea. But it also might if you play with it a little bit more and notice where you're holding that tension. And then notice that part of the body, maybe that's the shoulders. I remember when I was doing software design, I'd get, I'd I'd leave work and I'd feel so painful in the shoulders. I didn't notice it all day. Right. But as soon as I leave, there it is. And then to have some compassion for those shoulders that are holding all that. Um, I didn't know how to do that then. I'm glad that I know now and just, just, Use it as a way to play, to just experiment and see what comes with this this intention of kindness. Thank Thank you, you. So we went a few minutes over. I apologize. I want you to know how much I appreciate all of your practice. And I'm going to stay on if anyone wants to... um, As they say, take the refuges, the three refuges and the five precepts or ask questions about those. I'll be here for you for that. Um, So just stay on and we'll do that together. Otherwise, I wish you a really good week. Um, We'll be posting the next um, study materials, I hope this evening and the I'm not exactly sure when the video from this uh, conversation will come uh, online, uh, but it will be at our YouTube channel for Corona Buddhist Vihara, and there will be a link in the next study guide section. So if there's anything that that you said today that you'd like not to be um, put up then write to um, karunabv.org, no, info at karunabv.org, and then we'll make sure that that doesn't get posted. So take good care of yourselves, love yourselves. Um, Yes, practice uh, noticing where you're attached to this impermanent entity conglomeration of processing. (laughs) And let that go if you can,
2: so that you can be happy and free. Thank you.
3: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.